Haunted House, Haunted Mind. Episode 4. I'm Don Hill. Close your eyes for a moment. What do you see? What if reality is something other than what we see and hear and hear? Just before we get to episode four, I have a request. If you haven't downloaded the ebook chapters, please do, because it's the only way I can recover costs from making the podcast. So please go to canmoreghost.ca. That's canmoreghost, all one word, dot ca. And click on the ebook links. Okay, I'll talk about this once more at the end of the podcast. Meantime, this is episode four. Haunted House, Haunted Mind. Arthur C. Clarke, the author of 2001, A Space Odyssey, has a theory. The human eye is a camera, he says. It forms an image of the outer world on its sensitive screen, the retina, then transmits it to the brain. Could this system sometimes work in reverse, so that the brain sends images to the eye, making it not a camera, but a TV screen? Then believing would be seeing. Ordinary perception is a construction of partially what is actually out there and lots of what is inside you. Dean Radin. It looks more like a, a discussion with the rest of reality and, and agreeing upon something that ought to occur at the end, which is a magical idea. And that, that's why we're kind of uncomfortable with it from the, the Western scientific point of view, because we don't know what to do with that. Pedestrian lines like, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, come to mind. How about the devil? In the eye of the beholder, too? What about ghosts and goblins? Michael Persinger. Fifteen years ago, we were basically evaluating transcendental meditation, and we had an experienced teacher in the laboratory. And we were doing a routine EEG about 15, 16 minutes into the session. And then she began to throw spikes and slow wave. It was evident. At first, I thought it was an equipment error, but I looked and it was spikes and slow wave activity, clearly epileptic, emerging from the temporal lobes. Uh, primarily the right side. At the end of the experience, she concluded that God had been with her, the cosmic consciousness had been with her in the laboratory, and that she'd had a profound religious experience. I didn't tell her that at that time, when she was having the experience, she was displaying electrical epileptic activity over the temporal lobe. The experience was so profound to me that I began to pursue the idea that perhaps God experiences and mystical experiences were clearly tied to transient electrical activity involving the temporal lobe. I didn't set out looking for God, and I certainly didn't expect the presence of the Lord could make one feel so bloody awful, if that's what visited upon my former mountain abode. Maybe it was just my cultural conditioning, my imagination imposing a negative spin on an otherwise benign temporal lobe seizure stimulated by EMF in the local geology underfoot beneath the house. 
Perhaps it could have been a wonderful, pleasant experience if only I had thought about it differently. Maybe I was just crazy with paranoia or something. Or maybe not. Paul Devereaux. Now, if we are looking at these places, and if there are geophysical fields of various sorts, it may not be a direct hallucination, but auditory hallucinations are often triggered in these places. Diary. My uncle, the crazy one, he heard voices. And one day, a day that proved his undoing, he turned over the cash register in the local general store, shouting on about money changers in a backwoods town in northern Ontario. He was incarcerated, an asylum for the insane, never to come out again, until he was buried alongside his mother and father, my grandma and grandfather. I recognized myself in his pictures. The same gaze, the same penetrating look, looking for what's out there. So what about my house? Perhaps there's a scientific basis to account for stony Indian lore about spirits throughout the Bow Valley, some beneficial, some bad, and how we, the living, should not remain in this locale unless we're seeking a spiritual vision. And what about all the contemporary reports of hauntings, including a recent visitation by a ghostly apparition dubbed Lisa at the Canmore Community Recreation Centre, of all places? Might there be a certain something working in consort with EMF, something a Tibetan Lama might call bad karma, present in the landscape itself, that could induce these visions? This presence can be terrible, wrathful, fearful, demonic, or godlike, angelic or beatific in one form or another. But they can have positive and negative effects, but always powerful and always the sense of being from the other world. And that's what people would recognize. So the places you did not go, unless you were a powerful shaman who deliberately dealt with the dark forces, if you like, or it'd be other places where perhaps you did go for your vision quest or whatever. There were more beneficent places, if you like. And of course, because of this interaction, we see in early cultures and traditional cultures a tremendous uh, technology of consciousness, a tremendous understanding of psychological mapping of these states that we're simply not used to. Some points on the landscape emit higher levels of EMF than others. Caves, the tops of mountains, for instance, the very spots where mystics have traditionally sought extraordinary experience, the hiding place of the gods, and perhaps the devil too. Electromagnetic radiation generated by tectonic strain, particularly along earthquake zones, may well be fueling the troubled spots on our planet, territory which perpetually hosts war. The Balkan nations, for instance, are situated in a high-risk earthquake zone. Embedded within the landscape, unseen, unheard, but otherwise felt, might some obscure force make you crazy, perhaps violent, without ever openly tipping its hand? Does the miracle at Fatima make more sense considering the geophysical landscape underfoot? 20,000 people reported an extraordinary display of lights in the sky. The immediate area is rife with faults. As for my own ghostly encounter, the Bow Valley in the Canadian Rockies is home to five major geological faults converging on a focal point at Banff. I'm convinced I felt something awful. Certain I witnessed a presence, 
the perception was very realistic. The interesting thing is that the brain, particularly the temporal lobe, and deep within the temporal lobe, the amygdala, and its primary function would predict that depending on how these environmental electromagnetic fields stimulated the brain, you could get very pleasant experiences or very fearful ones. Michael Persinger. It's going to be relatively easier from the point of view of the technology of the brain to stimulate fearfulness. And in general, the negative areas are likely to be more common than the pleasant ones. The reason being is that fearfulness and intense fear and terror are the consequences of the extreme stimulations of the brain. The milder stimulations, which are more difficult to get naturally, and those are the ones that produce the more pleasure, pleasant ones, would be expected to be more infrequent, just in terms of statistical distribution. Diary. In 1995-96, there were 22 known suicides in the Bow Valley. That's well over five times the national average. What could account for this discrepancy? Because there's an area of the brain, the amygdala, which allows you to experience pleasure, euphoria, pleasantness, security, versus terror and fear, and because terror and fear is the experience associated with the greatest, most intense stimulation, it's more likely because of the ungraded stimulation in the environment that there'd be more fearful areas than pleasant ones. But there would be pleasant ones. Diary, Vancouver. Anila McNeil, the Tibetan nun, told me about the energy she felt during a retreat on the island of Delos, Greece. By the third day, she was hallucinating. The roofs were growing, slipping back. Rock holds energy, she said. If you stay anywhere, just stay in one spot, things will start to happen. Diary. Cypress Hills, Saskatchewan. Sharon Butala, the author of The Perfection in the Morning, showed me several hot spots on the family cattle ranch. My first impression was we were atop some kind of burial ground. She disagreed at the time with my feeling, but later told me in Vancouver that I was probably right. That was what a native woman had told her. Anyway, she showed me a small spot, a circle of stone, warned me not to step into it. She once did and got the overwhelming sensation that she had no business being there, that she must leave, get out. A feeling of presence. EMF? In a letter, I asked her to check it out with a compass, a primitive attempt to see if there was any magnetic energy to attract the point or make it spin awry. She wrote back, No, sorry. Ancient peoples had an intimate knowledge of their environment. As we know in the rainforest, the Indians know everything about every growing thing around them, what can be used for healing, what can be used for visions and so forth. And in just the same way, we should expect them to have been very observant about changes in mind state, different effects, different phenomena that might occur near this rock, on that mountain peak, by that river, near that spring, or whatever it might be. And these are the places their landscape was inhabited by spirits. And so when we look at ancient sites, really we're looking at a, a spirit geography that maps out this understanding of the landscape. We might now translate the word spirit as a geophysical phenomenon, but it's the same basic thing and it has the same effect on the mind, the spirit, and the psychology. The aesthetics of these places are also important. Diary. Like magnetic tape, why wouldn't the Earth, 
be a recording and storage device. How could it not be? Or maybe when I saw the ghost, I was being influenced by people close to me in ways not yet understood. My daughter, there's a theory that poltergeist phenomena is sometimes attracted by adolescent females, perhaps my wife Anne or my son, Michael Persinger. We do know that complex fields can be generated from the body, from the muscles, from the brain itself. The intensity is always an issue. But if the environment is optimal and we have individuals who are highly sensitive in terms of brain activity and the capacity to discern these fields, then it is uh, very likely, both in terms of neuroscience and in terms of empirical observation, that these individuals would influence people around them, particularly in close proximity. Our brains weren't just stimulated because the dog heard that sound, too. This is my wife, Anne. It wasn't just in our head. The dog heard it. He started to bark like crazy when he heard that knocking. We heard it, too. And the dog heard it as well because the dog woke us up with that knocking because he was barking like crazy. I've never seen the dog bark like crazy. The other thing, too, is when we were in that house, the dog would go downstairs while I was upstairs watching TV, and he would start to bark for no apparent reason. And I would go down and I would do a tour of the house and there was nothing going on outside the house or in the house. Odd phenomena, like hauntings, are sometimes reported in locations that run over or are near underground streams and sources of water. The sunken earth under the house in Canmore and the proximity to the water table from the Bow River might have created the conditions for geomagnetic activity and a subsequent release of EMF, which would induce a feeling of a malevolent presence. But it still doesn't explain the rappings which frightened Anne and me and the simultaneous barking of the dog. The report that you gave would be consistent with an increase in tectonic strain associated with differential water levels, hydraulic loads on the local river system, you happen to be living in a place that's a focal point, and as these phenomena occurred, and they would have occurred statistically, it would have been an unusual place with all types of aversive features to them, and sometimes there would be more intense stimuli than at other times, you effectively walk through and into one of these transient fields that stimulated your brain and produced the experience of the haunt. Every so often, I'll get calls from people who are having poltergeist activity in their house. Dean Raiden. And what I've noticed is that a neighbor won't tell the neighbor next to them that this is happening because it's either frightening or they'd be embarrassed to mention it. But I get those calls, and I have found that a number of times that neighbors within the block of each other who don't know each other, but I can tell from where they're calling that they're in the same general vicinity, out of the blue, they'll start talking about poltergeist activity. And they will interpret it according to whatever culture they come from, but it's the same kinds of phenomena. And so I'm thinking there's something physically located. It could be underground, it could be above ground. We don't know what it is. But the environment has changed, and it affects us because we're electromagnetic creatures. And we will interpret it according to how we wish to interpret it, in a sense. If the phenomenon is primarily electrical in nature, odd smells will occur, quite measurable odd smells, not indirect odd smells, and uh, odd tingling sensations or the feeling of a presence. But then, of course, there's the interaction with the brain that then produces the richness of experience 
and the fear that produced the haunt. The interesting thing about the haunt, it's almost always associated with fear, whereas the poltergeist phenomenon is rarely associated with fear on the part of the experience. If you, you look at poltergeist activities, or especially a few cases where people hear loud, really loud noises, deafeningly loud noises, but a person two feet away won't hear it. And objective equipment won't pick up anything, suggesting that these loud crashing noises, which are deafening, are in the head somehow, and they're localized in the head. People will, first of all, probably be subjected to some kind of external influence, and they interpret it differently. So in the medieval times, it was interpreted as the, the dragging of chains. And people may even have eventually seen a ghost with dragging chains, because that's what they knew. Today, we might think of it in terms of a UFO landing on the roof, because we, we have some physical effect that's occurring, but we then attribute it to all kinds of different things. Well, yes, on the Wellington Crescent in Sudbury, uh, there was a report of an unusual phenomena occurring. Uh, like most of these phenomena, it uh, was communicated privately because people are afraid, particularly professionals, are afraid to be called crazy or to have their reputations adversely affected. So we basically recorded the information. We went in with a seismograph and EM detectors, electromagnetic detectors, and a few other pieces of equipment to accommodate for possible sleepwalking and malingering other types of, of uh, artifacts or confounding variables and found that there were clear electromagnetic surges taking place in the bedroom within which people were experiencing the haunt-like phenomena. Some people saw a ball of light, others felt the presence of something, still others saw apparitional outlines. And what was particularly interesting is that when these phenomena occurred, the experiences would be so fearful that people would leave the apartment, run from the apartment, and we could tell by the impact on the floor, and it was coincident with the EM surge on our equipment that indeed these people were leaving. So their verbal reports matched the actual data. It, then we begin to realize that perhaps many types of haunt phenomena may be natural electromagnetic fields transiently, briefly generated for about 10 seconds, focused. In fact, these fields were enough to bend the pins on our recorder. We estimated maybe 200 Gauss, which is quite significant for a natural phenomenon. And interestingly enough, at the same time, we know the area in Sudbury was under tectonic strain because that was the same year within the same month as the only major UFO flap in Sudbury's history. Haunted House, Haunted Mind, Episode 4. There's one more to go. And a reminder, if you haven't already downloaded and read the ebook chapters, please do. Go to camwarghost.ca. That's camwarghost, all one word, dot ca. And click on the ebook links. Now, you can read them on any device, by the way, and it's your way of supporting the podcast. Until the next time, read the chapters and think of a journey that's out of this world and the consensus trance.